This is Close Talking. <laughs> Welcome to the first episode. I yeah. am Jack Rossiter Munley. And I'm uh, Connor McNamara Stratton. Yeah. Together we are bringing you this podcast. Yeah, and this is. Um, well, we had. So we had recorded um, six episodes in August. Our first one. Um, was going to be the poem uh, Urban Renewal by Yusuf Komanyaka, which is a great poem. To some extent, it is the reason that we are doing this podcast. Yes. Anyway, we were going to do that one. And then Tuesday, November 8th happened, and it was devastating at a level of magnitude so great that we thought, it would be negligent to use Jack's word to um, sort of carry on. So we decided that we would do a slightly different version of the um, of the close talking podcast that pays closer attention to the election itself and uh, thinks about how poetry is or isn't. Uh, relevant to these events and state of things. Yeah. Um, so normally the way the podcast works is we pick a poem, we read it at the beginning and the end of the podcast, and in between, Connor and I just talk about it. We talk about you know what it makes us think about or what it makes us feel. You know, we strive through coming together to discuss it for a greater level of understanding. And that is something that applies to literature. I personally feel like I get a lot more out of any given work when I have discussed it with someone. Um, and I'm lucky and Connor to have someone who is brilliant and in fact, professionally trained at reading literature. The larger idea behind our podcast is that in art, in life, by reaching out and by coming together, we can attain a deeper level of understanding emotionally, intellectually, in light of big events, real big events. I know that Connor and I have both been in our own ways, thinking through them, feeling through them, struggling with them, but we thought that uh, coming together and talking about them and sharing that conversation with you might in some small way be useful and helpful. Uh. And being who we are, we both, I think, I know for sure, I was immediately finding uh, literary touchstones in light of the event that helped me contextualize my feelings and, and start in some small way moving forward. Yeah, the severity of the situation has makes things feel ineffable or inarticulable, that is a word. Uh, it is clearly. now. It is now. I clearly did not articulate it. Um, and I do think, for me, poetry in particular is effective at giving me words that, if not sort of capture the situation, uh, give me a, a foothold or a lily pad in the pond to step on while I like time that. passes. I like that a lot. Um, um, so Connor and I have both sort of picked out a couple of different 
quotes or pieces that have spoken to us in some way in the last 24, 48 hours. And I think we're going to each share them and then talk about them a little bit, what they mean to us and just sort of where we're at. So Connor, do you want to kick us off? Sure. Yeah. Well, um, I guess first is this quotation. So I good friend of mine uh, sent this along actually earlier today via email. Um, it's a quote from this uh, Tracy Clayton, I think, who is part of the podcast Another Round, which is a great podcast. Uh, and I think she was on BuzzFeed News or something. And she said this. Um, and this, I don't know, It it. I really appreciated my friend saying this because I think this um, the sentiment was was important for me to think about. Um, she said, uh, "I am sad. I'm surprised, but I'm also feeling some very surprising feelings too. For one, I feel sort of edified in this moment. It sucks. I'm not happy about it. And then, but I feel like there's this thing that happens in America when white people are reminded that there are racist people in the world, and then go." oh my gosh, this is so shocking, I didn't understand. And people of color are like, mm-hmm, what did you think we were talking about this entire time? So at least people see who we're living with in America. So there's that. Um, and that felt um, just right on. I mean, I, I part of me was um, shocked, but at the same time, Part of me realized that shock is so indebted to all the levels of privilege I have as a white cis straight man. Um, I, yeah, I want to jump in and quickly note that Connor and I are both white, straight, have advanced degrees, and are the children of white, straight, married parents who also both have advanced degrees. So yeah. of people who are scared right now, there is a level of fear in so many people that Connor and I, for a lot of reasons that are basically accidents of birth, uh, it's just not a level that reaches us in the same way. I think we both try to understand it and be the most effective allies that we can, but it's, it's something that is uh, forever alien to us. In a, yeah. in a very deep yeah. way. Yeah, and I, you know, the most obvious but basic thing I, that I realized was, you know, America hates nearly everyone that I love, essentially, um, or at least a substantial part of America. And, and yeah, it's clearly know. the message that's received. Because um, yeah. even if the individual voters themselves don't perceive the vote they're casting as being one for, you know, hatred or for racism, it might be that it's honest economic, uh, you know, feeling. But the message that's received from so many people uh, looking at those results is that, as a friend of mine uh, told me, you know, I, I was told that half this country hates me and I need to be afraid. That quotation was a helpful reminder. Um, and from there I was, 
I just there were some some pieces that were that have been speaking to me for in various ways, um, and so I thought I would read them. The first is uh, from Claudia Rankine's Citizen, um, which is a which beautiful is, book. Which is a amazing book, and I mean it. I look to that book um, for a lot of guidance, uh, um, both poetics and, you know, how to be a citizen in, uh, you know, American white supremacy. Um, and so there's this, there's this excerpt from it. Um, and she, the book is, she talks a lot about, um, microaggressions and the experience of being uh, black in America and um, a lot of other things. This is the excerpt. Not long ago, you are in a room where someone asks the philosopher Judith Butler what makes language hurtful. You can feel everyone lean in. Our very being exposes us to the address of another, she answers. We suffer from the condition of being addressable. Our emotional openness, she adds, is carried by our addressability. Language navigates this. For so long you thought the ambition of racist language was to denigrate and erase you as a person. After considering Butler's remarks, you begin to understand yourself as rendered hyper-visible in the face of such language acts. Language that feels hurtful is intended to exploit all the ways that you are present. Your alertness, your openness, and your desire to engage actually demand your presence. You're looking up, you're talking back, and as insane as it is, saying please. I just think that's a marvelous excerpt and um, it resonates in a lot of ways, but I am thinking about this idea of address and I don't know, something about the election results and Trump's Trumpness has, it has to do with that address in terms of it's, it's made it very explicit everywhere. I think this racism um, and I don't know. I, I, it's not exactly articulate, but um, I think, yeah, I'm not sure. What do you think of that? <laughs> uh, I think that the way the poem is framed, where it starts with her listening and a collective group of people leaning in to listen closer, mm -hmm. and then switches to what it's like when she's being talked to mm -hmm. and ends with her trying to speak back and the powerlessness mm -hmm. she feels or at least the power imbalance she feels mm -hmm. when she is the one doing the speaking mm -hmm. and having to say please for no yeah. other reason than because she feels like she has to and has been made to feel like she has to i think that journey from collective interest to a level of disinterest 
or uh, erasure or discrediting that is just built in and inherent is a powerful way that she frames that work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and mm -hmm. hyper visibility of, I don't know, it, um, that seems so central and central to, I don't know, the, the way this feels now is the, the sort of the racism and also the targets of that racism feel especially hyper visible, I think, yeah. at the moment, um, because of this electoral thing, which, which obviously is political and not specifically uh, linguistic, but at the same time, it is, it is, it's interesting because for now it's like, this is, we're in the sort of like discursive moment of Trump being president rather than the material moment because he hasn't yet become president. So it's like that the effects, the effects of that are still to come um, and are not realized. But what, what this week has felt is the fact of the proclamation of Trump becoming president has felt like the address, the linguistic address, rather than his sort of, you know, actual role as commander in chief. Yeah. Um, so and it's been powerful to watch. Um, yeah. And I think that a lot of what this election is about is what can be said, what can't be said, who can say things in what way. Mm -hmm. And the question we're going to be facing is what can a president say? Because even during this campaign cycle, Trump has said things that no one in contemporary political life, I would say it's been maybe a hundred years since people spoke the way he does in electoral politics. And it's almost never been done even that long ago on the presidential scale in the way that he does it. The conversational tick switch that has happened since he was elected has been interesting. I mean, his for his acceptance speech, he's very good at winning. He knows how to do that. And so he gave a very conciliatory, gracious acceptance speech. He's been fairly sedate every time he's been seen in public since then. We're in a moment of finding out what kind of language space we're going to live in with him going forward. Because we already know the language he's put out there. We already know the language that he's condoned and accepted and used himself and the language and actions that he's empowered across the country. That's been clear for months. And now the question becomes, does he keep doing that? Is the discursive space of the presidency, which has limited so many people in so many ways for so many years. I mean, Obama, for the first, I'd say, six and a half years of his presidency was severely limited because of the space he found himself in. There are many things I think he wanted to say and probably even now wants to say that he just can't. Yeah. Right? Things that he wants to say about Donald Trump, but he can't and he won't because of the preservation of that office and the transition of one president to another. And that's a very unique moment we find ourselves in. And uh, just today when they're touring the White House together, they spent 90 minutes together in the Oval Office. Oh my God. 
and that's largely a result of this unique discursive space of the presidency that's sort of the last really sacred political space brutal yeah thank you jack um so the the other one is a short little poem uh by lucille clifton um and i just well i love lucille clifton she she's another one of america's greats um she was born in 1936 she passed in 2010 um writes a lot about uh, being um, in America as a, a black woman. And um, I just as a side note, have always admired in her style, how um, her language is so close to speech um, and is, has so many elements of the colloquial or the vernacular um, yet at the same time is doing a lot of uh, formal things that um, one might sort of normally only, you know, look for in like a Petrarchan sonnet or something stupid. Um, so I love this poem. Um, when I was at Oberlin, my senior year, sort of a lot of um, anti-Semitic and uh, racist slurs that had been posted in sort of graffitied everywhere um and then there was a sighting of someone in a kkk hood and basically classes were canceled uh the following day after a lot of pressure from the africana department and other departments and students and um there was like a march and all this stuff and one student read this Lucille Clifton poem. It was just one of those moments where the context of the moment and the precision and ferocity of the words are just like so in sync and powerful that it's kind of like chilling to think back to it. So I, anyway, it stuck with me and I, it feels, I'll say more after. It's called, Won't You Celebrate With Me? Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman, what did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day Something has tried to kill me and has failed. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about this. First, it came to me when I was thinking about that quote earlier about Tracy Clayton saying, people of color are like, what did you think we were talking about this entire time? Um, and I, I feel like this is one of those instances of etching into that Thing that they have been talking about this entire time this kind of thing of you know that end of that come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed i just think it's very moving and um and i, I just think it the the tone of that end in the rhythm of it 
is so amazing, remarkable. Um, that's a hard truth. Yeah. And that's a deep personal truth to be putting out. And the poem sets you up for it, but that's yeah. devastating. And that's, yeah, that's real. I remember the only thing that I've heard that is similar to that is uh, there are a series of interviews with everyday people about what they thought the difference was between being white and being black in America. And this one guy says, I wake up every morning and I think about the fact that I'm black. That's huge. And I remember hearing that for the first time because I've, you know, in the academic sense, questioned my privileges and whiteness, but to have it put that starkly, I do not necessarily wake up every day and think about the fact that I'm white. I just yeah. am. Yeah, for sure not. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that is like one of the, the kernels of the Clifton poem that it's a condition, it's the condition of existence. The amazing part additionally about the poem, you know, this idea of the way it's, won't you celebrate me with me in the beginning and then at the end it comes in with come celebrate and the way that the line ends after celebrate um, and that imperative to celebration within the condition that she has sort of described her existence to be in um, makes makes the poem resonate on such an intense level. Um, and then the fact, I just love how it's like, come celebrate line break with me the everyday line break. Something has tried to kill me line break and has failed. So every day is obviously emphasized. And that some, and then I like something has tried to kill me happens and exists on its own line. So before and has failed, that could easily have been written with me that every day something has failed to kill me, basically. And okay. the, the failure would have been sort of undermining the fact that something is trying to kill her. First and foremost, she is perceiving something trying to kill me. Then there is the failure, I think. It, it makes the, the threat and the triumph exponentially greater. I think that's just a great poem. And then one little thing, there's a poet who I really admire and um, actually in one of the future podcasts, we'll talk about one of our other poems, but Don Lundy, Don Lundy Martin um, has this book, Discipline. That's a great book. And she, this is just a little, it's a base, it's almost like a haiku, but it's kind of in the middle. Um, and I found it very interesting. Um, the eye is more relaxed when it is hunted, which is crazy. But, Whoa. Um, and it's the eye as in not the eyeball, but the, the capital I, I. When I read that first, that just sort of startled me. It exists by itself, kind of on the page by itself. And it's this idea of, I think sort of if you were to turn it into a, a argument or a claim talking about if if you are a self you are a, a person being hunted uh in whatever way um you 
like, I think first, you know, it's like, imagine a bear's chasing you. You're being hunted by a bear. You're in total flight mode or something. You don't have the sort of like cognitive, uh, self consciousness, um, that would sort of allow you to be a, you know, moving thinking I or self. And in that way that becomes relaxed. If you are totally, you know, not being hunted, comfortable, wherever, that's when the I becomes, you know, more sort of complicated, wrapped in self or whatever. Um, But of course, she's not talking about being hunted by a bear, but um, (laughs) the, the body under threat of extinction, I think. And the condition of being threatened is the kind of being hunted. And I think that relaxed is such a disturbing, but also perfect word because, I mean, it's just an obvious tonal disjunction between being hunted and being relaxed. Right. But that idea that you're less bound into who you might be when Mm -hmm. you're under threat is Mm -hmm. so powerful and so true. I mean, that could clearly be about her experience, but I think what we saw in the election is a lot of people who feel under threat reacting. Yeah, and then at the same time, that was sort of my first thought. And my other thought was the movement toward um, the communal or organization or community um, that has happened also strikes me as a relaxation of the eye where you're like, so good. You're so brilliant. That's great. (laughs) That's so true. Don Lundy Martin is brilliant. Yeah. But I'm like, I'm floating on the surface and like, Oh yeah, a lot of people were pretty pissed off. (laughs) Feeling threatened. Like, yeah, everybody knows that like does on the news, but you're all like, no, guess what the relaxed eye really means. Like (laughs) it's not I anymore. Right. Yeah, it's a it's a we or a they or an us. Um, I was thinking about that this week. I mean, that's all beautiful and brilliant and insightful and helpful. Mm. Thank you, Jack. My own literary journey, as it has been, I have several touchstones in my artistic universe. I guess I'm, I'm thinking about looking at like the sky and stars and stuff. I don't know why. Um, I have a certain number of artists, poets, musicians, authors, who I tend to return to, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally, in times of either great great emotion, really. It could be happy, it can be sad. Anyone who knows me even a little bit, and dear listeners, whether you've ever met me or not, you're about to get to know both Connor and myself, so best get this going right now. Bruce Springsteen. Uh, I don't know if you guys know who Bruce Springsteen is. Uh, American singer-songwriter, kind of underground. Not not out there. Um, Jack loves Bruce Springsteen. I do. This is one of the first facts of Jack. It's true. But anyway, so one of the first places I went as I was watching even the election returns before I was making sense of them, before I was trying to work through them in any intellectual or really intentional way, 
Uh, there's this interview that Bruce Springsteen gave in the 1990s with the gay newspaper, The Advocate. And it was when he had his song Streets of Philadelphia in the movie Philadelphia. And they talked with him about, you know, why he made that decision because his persona was as this sort of hyper-masculine rock star uh, for the working class. And what he had to say about that was, if my work was about anything, it was about the search for identity, for acceptance, for communion, and for a big country. I've always felt that's why people come to my shows, because they feel that big country in their hearts. And my sort of visceral and immediate reaction to the election was that I, for one of the most fundamental, uh, it, it happens, but one of the most fundamental levels of response I had was that I couldn't feel that vision of the country that I try to believe in and work for in my life. And reading what my friends had to say about how the results were affecting them, they were scared and they felt like the country was rejecting them. And I like this country. I think it's pretty great. It's got a lot of problems, but there's a lot to recommend it. And it's scary to me to see so many people feel like they don't have a place here when the country I believe in is one that tells them that they're beautiful and valuable. I like, I don't know, I love that phrase, big country. It's very Bruce. It is about size. The election was demonstrating how big it is. And in that demonstration, me realizing that half of it is not what I have considered to be my big country. That's also to say that it is, of course, this country. From thinking about that quote on the night to the next morning, what I was trying to think through was the fact that, to me, this world that I was now living in felt impossible and alien. And that the feelings I was having now in 2016 are the exact feelings that millions of people had in 2012 when Barack Obama was reelected. The polls showed a closer race than what the election actually was in 2012. Obama won pretty comfortably, both in the popular vote and the electoral college. And a lot of people saw a vision of the country that they didn't understand and didn't feel comfortable with and that did not feel like it was for them. And I had to try and think about that for myself because no one ever thinks they're part of the problem. I still don't think I am. <laughs> I'm uh, for sure part of the problem. Uh, I mean, we all are in our own ways. But trying to square those two competing ideas while still being committed to my beliefs, like yeah. trying to, to have understanding without being toothless in my response and just, oh, you know, this is just sort of how it is now. Trump got elected. Like, on one level, yes, he's elected. He's the president. His success is our country's success, which is what George H.W. Bush famously wrote to Bill Clinton. It doesn't mean I want his policies to become actual law. I don't want him to repeal oh, no, the no, laws no. that have allowed for the you know, large-scale social changes of the last eight years. I'm terrified that he's going to get to appoint a lot of people to the Supreme Court. But at the same time, I would prefer that he not ruin the country forever or in some deep way, more than he already has, cause problems on the national and global scale. I want him to 
you know, govern as well as he possibly can. I, I want that badly. Yeah. If that makes sense. And so that's what I was sort of struggling with. And then, of course, figuring out my own place in relationship to that. Ooh. Yeah, that's intense. I was thinking about Claudia Rankine and Marilyn Robinson came to talk this fall. And this, I think this is something that Robinson had said. She had talked and said again about uh, why she doesn't like the term spirituality. And it, it had to do with the fact that you are essentially taking the good vibes that religion offers by being spiritual and sort of denying uh, its whole history, um, the history of religion or the history of a particular religion or denomination. And she was very adamant that you, you know, and she's a, um, well, she's some, she's a Christian, some kind of, I don't know, rusty on my facts, but um, she was very adamant that you should remain accountable to the history of the institutions of, of which you are a part if you're going to take things from it. Um, And so I was thinking about that in terms of um, America, basically, and that this is, to me, America is founded on uh, anti-blackness and slavery. Obviously, we knew that, but that to me is the kernel that makes America run and always has and among other things. And so to, and I think you can, and many people have done so, Michelle Alexander in the New Jim Crow is one of the great examples of tracing the history of anti-blackness through slavery, Jim Crow, mass incarceration. The history of drug laws in this country or the history of slow emancipation? Yeah, as housing soon as one set of explicitly racist laws goes away, an implicit set sort of springs up seemingly out of nowhere, but all of a sudden, after the civil rights movement, you have much more restrictive drug laws targeting African Americans. Yeah, and so to me, to be an American is to, I think, have to look that history of what I think is fundamental horror and plunder at its root and work with that and and see this election as not a new thing but a manifestation of things that have been boiled into this country since it began basically yeah there's a part of ralph ellison's book invisible man which is an incredible book highly recommended to anyone who's listening where they talk about the way and i forget the name of the paint but it's the whitest paint there is and it's called something like all white or super bright and the process of making it what makes it this incredibly white paint is that five drops of black are added to it and that i think is a very powerful image that contextualizes a lot of what you're talking about because you don't get whiteness without something to write it against. That isn't something I I have been thinking about that in the last couple of days, but it's not one of the major touchstones for me. Uh, mm-hmm. 
the other one is another Bruce Springsteen piece, I guess. Uh, I can't help it. And this is no. another one I think of all the time uh, because in the early 90s, Springsteen was trying to sort of uh, reclaim his image and his message from what had happened to him when he became a superstar in the mid 80s. In the early 90s, he wanted to sort of take that back. And he wrote this album, The Ghost of Tom Joad, that is almost entirely in the voice of marginal people in the Southwest, a lot of Hispanic voices that he's sort of experiencing and, and writing in the writing end. But the song that he first wrote is the one that kicked off that album and the one that he felt helped him find a voice, and that was The Ghost of Tom Joad. And the end of that, the title is taken from Tom Joad, who is the main character in The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. And the last uh, verse of the song is his paraphrasing of this speech that Tom Joe gives to his mother at the end of the Grapes of Wrath. I guess I'll read it. Ooh, yeah, you gotta sense? do it. Yeah, read it. Well, I don't know. I, re I, I don't think I can sing it effectively. Oh. Um, well, you could sing it. All right, I'll try it. I'll try it. Okay, get a little. Uh, Let me get this, uh, this, this water going. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Tom said. Mom, wherever there's a cop beating a guy, wherever a hungry newborn baby cries, where's a fight against the blood and hatred in the air? Look for me, Mom, I'll be there. Wherever there's somebody fighting for a place to stand, for a decent job or a helping hand. Wherever somebody's struggling to be free, look in their eyes, mom, and you'll see me. I literally get chills every time I listen to that, and I've heard it hundreds of times. <laughs> I do not, I am not surprised. <laughs> uh, and it's not just because I love Bruce Springsteen, but that's such a powerful message of yeah. commitment to a certain way of being in the world that sees the value in other people who for whatever reason are fighting with everything they have for the very basic elements of life. Yeah. And that's something that I think we're going to see a lot of and need a lot of in the next four years. And particularly for myself, as a white person, understanding my privilege and trying to mobilize it the best that I can to be an advocate for or a companion with people who are being told right now and could possibly be told in a lot of ways in the years to come that they're not worthy, that they don't matter, that their voice isn't as loud as someone else's because of the color of their skin or who they choose to love that my position for the next four years and all of us is to access that part of ourselves that can resonate with those words, that wherever somebody is struggling for their place in the world, for their piece of life, that we are there to affirm them and help them in whatever way we can. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think that's particularly pertinent 
I know it speaks to me because I am in light of the election thinking about my place as an advocate for people who uh, have less of a voice than I do or have a voice with less power than mine. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's yeah, I like the I mean just thinking about that song and I mean, yeah, obviously the the repetition of wherever is what uh, sort of brings that home. I love how the song goes down. The, it's like every line goes down in the notes. Uh, yeah, that's, I, don't know, I feel like that's important somehow. Yeah, interesting in, in lyrics, thinking about position and position of lyrics, um, there's always this tension of, you know, you, you feel it like there's, there's always this, like you have the I voice and yet it aspires to often be a sort of universal I, right. Um, or at least a capacious I that can, um, allow many people in. And I, it does seem like that one in particular is striving towards that capacity. And, and from everything I know of what Springsteen's intentions were with the song, that's what he was looking for. Um, and he's very specific to say the ghost of Tom Joad, which is this sort of nebulous concept of commitment to a certain kind of ideal. It's mm -hmm. not, it's the spirit that Tom Joad embodies in the book is one that he himself is trying to take on in the album that follows. It's the first song on the album. Mm -hmm. And it's one that I think he's encouraging listeners to access within themselves. Um, the implied message that I have always taken from that song is that the ghost of Tom Joad lives in every one of us. Mm -hmm. We have to find it and give it voice. That's our obligation. Yeah, no, I mean, that's cool. It's like, so song, song and poetry have they're like so close in a lot of ways. And yet I, one way that I think about the difference in it's a, their effects is this relationship between the, the voices, individual I and its potential aspiration or whatever towards something larger. I feel like songs much more easily feel larger than the self just in terms of you can sing along basically and like once you sing along then you are the singer you are the performer and you know it's coming from you um, and so when you say me in that song suddenly the ghost of tom joad is is in you whereas poetry and i think especially now is so fixed on the page, um, but also is less <laughs> catchy in a lot of ways that it is not sort of re-performed by the reader and it and that prevents its eye from from being larger, I think. Um, I think and, there's a stronger sense of communal authorship in music. It's easier to take ownership of a song. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people don't, 
pull out a poem and they're like, oh yeah, that's my poem when it's yeah. one that someone else wrote. Whereas if a song comes on and that's the song that gets you grooving, you're like, oh yeah, that's my jam. That's my like, song. That's that feels song. like it's your song. That's um, me. Yeah. Right. Like, oh my God. And that that's interesting. Obviously, I think instinctually that distinction makes sounds like an argument for music over poetry or something because the communal is so appealing. Um, and in particular, given the, uh, you know, this week, that seems to be what a lot of people in a lot of different places are going for is some sort of sense of community against, you know, what has happened um, to resist, to fight back, to do something positive change. Um, yet at the same time, there is, um, to me, something remarkable in reading poetry that is such an encounter with difference or such an encounter with the other and a poem in its removedness from me has, has something else to offer. Um, and I think that's equally important, um, especially thinking about positions, thinking about our positions and, but also just all the different positions that people have in, in America and blah, blah, blah. Um, America and blah, blah, blah. America and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> that, you know, it's, it's important to have community, but it's also important to recognize sort of fundamental difference and encounter that and look that in the eye and live sort of alongside it or with it. Um, but not in a way that presumes that, you know, we're all one in the same and happy family or whatever. Um, right. That might be an aspirational goal in yeah. some fashion. But even at that point, hopefully you're recognizing difference, but finding value in it. Yeah. It's not exactly. that you don't see difference anymore. We're not talking about some colorblind nonsense. Encountering difference and hopefully the leap that's made is then acknowledging it and giving it value. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, what has spoken to me most since uh, the election is a poem and that's exactly the message it has. What I, is it? What uh, is it? Oh, it's going to make me tell. Jack, what's a poem? Jack, we need a poem. It, again, I'm searching for a real deep cut here from little known alt poet Mary Oliver. Oh my God. And her least known work. Just kidding. So this is Mary Oliver, probably her best known poem, but it just happened to come across my consciousness yesterday evening through total happenstance. And I'm not going to read the whole poem, even though it's a beautiful poem, but the last two lines of it, let me make sure I don't fuck them up. Um, but the last two lines of the poem are, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And that hit me really hard for a couple of reasons, primarily because it's directed at me and I had spent the day uncertain and questioning 
and searching for what do I do? How do I understand this? How do I move forward? Um, as Connor knows, up there with Bruce Springsteen, something to know about me is that I can list the presidents of the United States in order. I learned how to do that when I was six. And it's, it's real. Um, we'll back then, it ended at Clinton. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there have been names added to it during the time that I've known the list. And on a silly and personal note, one of the big things that I took away from this election was having to understand that this guy's name was forever on that list that I'm going to know probably for the rest of my life. And I only today did I actually go through and say all the president's names in order, including his, just to, to test it out. But this question, tell me, what is it you plan to do, which is the first line, is really a fundamental question. Like, what is it I'm going to do? How am I going to feel okay? And where's, where's the work? Because I want to do the good work. I want to find people and causes I believe in and help empower them and feel them empower me. Um, and really try and be positive and affirmative about my beliefs moving forward after what I take as, in large ways, a repudiation of a lot of the things that I believe and value. And then the second part, with your wild and with your one wild and precious life. And after an election night, that to me was affirming a man with a reductive view of which lives are precious and valuable. And that I saw from what many of my friends who are LGBTQ or Hispanic or Muslim or any number of the different identities that he has attacked or empowered attacks against, they're afraid and they don't feel like he or the country finds their lives to be precious. That affirmation of someone's life being wild and precious, whoever they are, was so important to me. And the combination of what are you gonna do, you valuable, beautiful, exceptional person with the power to make change. That's how I took the quote. You know, <laughs> those two concepts put together were exactly what I needed. Uh, and I went from being really upset to having just a little bit of understanding of where to go forward. So yeah. that's, that's my Mary Oliver quote. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, yeah, Mary Oliver, she's the, she's, the, she's the big hitter. She's like cold play of poetry or something. <laughs> Not a great reference, but she's, she's a big deal. But um, that aside, Po poetry biz aside, um, no, I, I love that quote. Um, I love, uh, yeah, well, you said, I mean, wild and precious, such a, such a perfect pair of words. I mean, how are you going to, how are you going to put life in two adjectives that feel somehow, you know, comprehensive yet not reductive? Um, and I think that's, yeah, it's hard to, think of two better ones. Um, it was interesting. You, yeah, you almost forgot the one. And I was like, no, that, that one is very important. Um, it's like, that's, this is, 
you know, this is the shit. This is the thing. Um, this is it. This yeah. is your chance. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, yeah, I like tell me it's interesting cause it's, yeah. So obviously as you talked about, you know, it's, it's an address to you, but it's different than this will become apparent. But one way that I work through meanings of small phrases is just imagining if they had been written otherwise, I feel like I find myself doing that. So if tell me hadn't been there and it's just, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? That to me is interesting. Um, and it, it addresses the reader, but at the same time, well, at the same time, it, it allows for more sort of emotional ambiguity. It's like, well, I don't know if this is like a challenge or like, you know, like, you know, are you going to do anything? Um, and then, so I feel like, tell me clarifies the intimacy of the moment. I feel like this is a speaker in the poem who wants to know what you want to do. Um, it's like, and it makes it so much more directed. Yeah. I mean, when I heard the quote, it yeah. was immediately coming at me. Yeah. And it threw me back on myself. And it, yeah. it, is, it really demanded reflection. Yeah. Um, and it also, I think the including including the you plan mm -hmm. it's not tell me what you will do it's tell me what you will plan to do figure it out yeah have a plan your life is wild and precious it's an untamable uncontainable you know brilliant explosion of humanity you've got to figure out how to harness that power what yeah. do you plan to do with it? You could do anything. It's crazy. You're a living, breathing human being. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> what, are you, what are you gonna do with that is not enough of a question. You have to plan it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I know that would that would definitely resonate in particular with you. You are you're I'm also a planner. You're a planner. That's true. Um, I'm I'm a bit of a planner as well. Um, I think even beyond that, I think that, yeah. as I was saying, like the idea yeah, yeah. that life is so big and wild and the finiteness, it's your one life, yeah. means that you have to figure something out about what you're going to do with it. Mary Oliver for the win. I know. She is, again, you see, Connor has like the really excellent uh, deeper cuts. And <laughs> I got Bruce Springsteen. No, Bruce Springsteen is great. Everyone, everyone's invited to the party. It's true. Um, I mean, that's, well, that's the beauty of languages. You know, you obviously want, you want the new words. You know, you want the poems from the poets who not many people have read who are on the underground. But you also want to re-examine the common language that is part of the fabric of our societal hubbub, being able to reread that within, you know, new contexts, new situations is, is equally vital. Absolutely agreed. And I think something that we both believe very strongly is that at times like these, there is great value in art of all kinds. Yeah. And what art does is speak to essential truths about people yeah actually emotionally physically uh, communally individually art is made by 
human beings who are deeply interested in examining life and all that it contains. And that at moments like this, it's a great opportunity to engage with that and let it help our own examination of a moment that in many ways feels unknowable right now. Yeah, totally. I completely agree. That that reminds me of another quote. Uh, maybe it's probably the last quote. That I think this will be the final life. word. But there was an interview with Tehu Cole, um, who's a novelist and essay writer. Um, he wrote Open City and writes a lot of essays for the New Yorker and other everywhere, basically. But a friend, colleague had posted this uh, interview on uh, LitHub. Um, Tehu Cole reminds us of life beyond politics and the beauty of art. That's where it's from. Uh, it's with him and um, Adam Fitzgerald. And he says, but let me, and he talks a lot about sort of art in the context of this political moment. It's very recent. Um, but let me make my own personal argument in defense of making art. I don't even know who fashioned this particular phrase or idea. There's this idea that we do war so that our children will do commerce so that their children will be poets. Well, Adam, I'm not doing war and I'm not going to waste my life with commerce. Whether or not it's financially viable for me, I want my goal of civilization to be as follows. To do the work, to pay attention to what's beautiful, and to encourage others in that form of attention as well. That's where I want to be. Beautiful. I like that. I like that too. I think that's a great place for us to, to wrap up. Thanks, Dave Cole. Yeah. Uh, this has been the first episode of Close Talking and also a supersized episode of Close Talking. Normally, we look at one poem, and it's about half an hour total in light of the election as we said at the top of the show connor and i wanted to take some time to reflect on it together and to look at what literary touchstones we had come across that were helping us as we figured out our own way through uh, the feelings and thoughts that we've been having as a result of the events of tuesday night so thank you all for listening if you want to, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash close talking. By doing that, you will get the latest updates about all close talking happenings. And you will hear all about what Connor and I are doing, all of the cool stuff we get up to between shows. Uh, and if you have anything that you want to say, anything you want to share about poems or songs or pieces of visual art that have meant something to you in the last couple days, uh, feel free to send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. Critiques of our ideas. Yeah, especially. yeah. If you've got something to say about what we've been saying, our we would love opinions. to hear it. Indeed. Go in. Do it. We want to hear from you. Uh, close Talking is about Connor and I talking about poems, but we want to talk with you too. We want to hear what you have to say. Uh, so if you can, drop us a line, closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. Thanks for a great conversation, Connor. This has been beautiful. Thanks, Jack. <laughs>